The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Cheryl Watson. She is a professor emeritus in the biochemistry and molecular biology department at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Dr. Watson received her PhD from Baylor College of Medicine and completed postdoctoral fellowships in steroid actions. She is also a fellow of the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine program from Drexel University, and that's in Philadelphia. And she is the founding editor-in-chief of the journal Endocrine Disruptors, which is going to be our topic for today. Dr. Watson's research has focused on how our cells respond to estrogen and estrogen-like mimics that affect our physiology, development, and even cancer promotion. So, Dr. Watson, welcome. It's a delight to have you. Well, it's a delight to be asked to comment. Thank you. Well, you've been a longtime researcher in this field. How did you become interested in endocrine disruption? Well, certainly... Early in undergraduate school, I had some amazing professors that made me interested in the way that hormones work. And once I started my Ph.D. program, I did that with an individual, James Clark, who also would talk about this idea that many years ago. This was in the late 70s. And he would talk about, with his colleagues and with his trainees, about this idea of things mimicking estrogens, because that's what we worked on. And so that's where the seed was planted, and it just became an increasingly interesting topic to me throughout my career, because we began to learn so much more about the chemicals that were possibly doing this kind of thing to us, and their widespread dispersion in the environment. So we should back up a little bit and define endocrine disruption? Okay. Well, endocrine refers to the endocrine system of hormones in all animals and in plants, actually, too. And disrupting that takes many different forms, but one of the prime ways to do it is to mimic the chemicals that are natural hormones, but I call the mimics imperfect hormones because they're not precisely the exact same size and shape. They have little diversions, and this means that they don't sit into their receptors in animal tissues quite the same, and it means the things they interact with, the interactions are just a little bit off. Hmm. So they are endocrine molecules, they are hormone molecules or mimics, but they don't cause the precisely the same responses as a natural hormone does or they compete with the natural hormone. Mm. Okay. Can we identify what some of those chemicals might be that are ubiquitous in our environment? Well, the category that I specialize in most are the estrogens. And so, and estrogens, it's a very interesting case because the estrogen receptor 
turns out to be a very versatile receptor and it accepts a variety of different chemicals that look kind of like estrogens, like the natural estrogens. Mm -hmm. And there are many things that can then mimic them by fitting into that receptor. And the ones that are getting the most press these days and probably that are the biggest threats are various kinds of plastics or other chemicals that are used in consumer products to make them more more versatile or more make them wear better, you know, like coatings on things. Mm-hmm. Or there's a variety of pesticides that mimic estrogens. So those are the ones I would say that I have worked the most on. Also, since you're a dietitian, I'm sure you're interested in the fact that some compounds in plants also mimic estrogens, but they tend to be only active at much, much higher concentrations, which is what you would find them in in foods. And I don't worry about them quite so much because plants and animals have co-evolved and animals have kind of learned to deal with the plant kind of estrogens Hmm. along the way. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the plant ones because the one that I'm most interested in or that I'm most aware of has to do with the phytoestrogens Mm -hmm. in soy. And I remember reading an article many, many years ago showing that we know that Japanese women, for example, when they are raised in Japan, have very low rates of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then when they come to the United States, their rate increases to equal what we see in American women who are born in the United States. And I thought it was interesting that what the researchers had concluded was that early exposure to soy was somehow protective. So not only during childhood, but also during the prepubescent time period. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, women who take, say, tamoxifen for breast cancer, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, should I be eating soy or not? Will it compete with the tamoxifen? Have you seen any data on that? Well, certainly I have seen some medical advisories that women that already have breast cancer should not eat a diet that's very heavy in soy proteins and other chemicals because they could, at very high concentrations, cause an estrogen-dependent cancer like breast cancer to grow. Mm. The cells are dependent on their growth for estrogens, but usually they use the natural hormones to grow. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it. But as far as protective effects, people debate about this all the time and come up with various theories. It's kind of hard to prove, but we have done a little bit of that kind of work just looking at combinations of physiological estrogens like estradiol and pharmaceutical estrogens and other kinds of estrogens that are in the environment and dietary estrogens and doing combinations of them and seeing if you can alter the signaling that might have to do with cancer cell growth, for instance. And the last paper that I published actually addresses that with daidzine, which is one of the soy chemicals that are estrogenic. And you can see that it has differential effects on certain signaling systems in cells that either promote or don't promote cell division. And, of course, a high amount of cell division is what causes a cancer cell to be a cancer cell, right? Right. So, but again, there's a lot of different ones, and we have to study the combinations, which is pretty high-intensity work that's going to require a lot of funding Mm. to do that because there's so many different dietary estrogens, natural estrogens, 
and contaminant estrogens. There's a lot of different ones. So we have to study them very systematically. Mm. The ones that I am most concerned with, like you, aren't necessarily from the naturally occurring foods that we eat, but from plastics and from Mm -hmm. food box coatings. And so the recommendations that I tend to give to consumers based on other research that I've seen and researchers that I've interviewed is that when and if at all possible, store food in glass containers, never ever microwave in plastic. We're learning now that there are microplastics in seafood, so Mm -hmm. we're consuming these plastics. What kind of advice do you give consumers about plastic use? Well, exactly what you said. (laughs) When you heat things up in a plastic container, heat causes molecules to jiggle faster, and sometimes they escape the medium that they're in and migrate into your food. So any kind of heating up or jiggling the molecules makes the contamination far, far worse. So you should never heat things up in plastic, for instance, in the microwave, or you shouldn't let it sit in your car in a plastic container either Mm -hmm. on a hot day with the sun beaming in. All kinds of different scenarios that you can imagine where you're applying heat or the vibration of molecules should be avoided. And I myself use glass containers as much as I possibly can. I've even gone to the point now of carrying in my car a little stainless steel container that when I go out to eat, if I have leftovers, I put the leftovers in the stainless steel container and I can heat that up in the oven. So I try not to use, I mean, I know that when you're traveling, it's very, very difficult to avoid these things. Right. But I use stainless steel containers when I can't. I also carry my own water bottle, right. a stainless steel water bottle, and get my water from drinking fountains, which is filtered. Mm-hmm. And much better than drinking water out of a plastic bottle because you have no idea where that plastic bottle has been before it came to you. It could have sat on a loading dock. Right. It could have been in the bottle for two years. <laughs> and during that time, it might have leached out into the water. And so I just tried to avoid, I'm not a fanatic about it, but uh, I, when you're traveling, sometimes you can't avoid it. But wherever possible, I try to use glass and stainless steel and avoid plastic containers and any coated containers if I possibly can. I was recently at a restaurant and I had some leftovers and I noticed that they were putting leftovers in those styrofoam kind of Mm -hmm. boxes. And I specifically asked if they had a piece of aluminum foil that I could wrap up my leftovers in because I did not want to have the contact with a potential endocrine-disrupting chemical that would migrate from that container. Did they respond well? Oh, yeah. They were very very cooperative, yeah. But it's just a strategy that we can use whenever I see those kinds of containers. How can we avoid using those? And then I also ask businesses not to use the styrofoam containers. Mm -hmm. I have a question about silicone because that has become sort of this new popular trend. For example, muffin tins are now lined with silicone. What, if any, research have you seen about that? Well, I became concerned about it too because I was using a spray vegetable oil coating when I was baking Uh and I wondered what made it not stick and I looked at the ingredients and it said silicone on it. So I started doing some research And I discovered that my bottle of multiple vitamins, one of the ingredients is silicon. (laughs) Wow. So it's actually a a component of glass, like sand is silicon, right? Uh So I figure if they 
put it as an ingredient, an added ingredient into my vitamins, that surely it must not be that toxic. Hmm. So it's considered, I guess, one of those trace minerals that you're supposed to have. Now, I can't say that for sure, but that was a curious coincidence, you know, that I tracked down a little bit. Right. And so now I'm not so scared of silicon anymore. Yeah. But maybe the jury is out, and I'm sure there's always uh, remains to be testing to be done, but I'm not as worried about it as I once was. Right. Well, there are certainly larger categories of chemicals that we know are harmful and especially harmful to certain populations. And I think we need to emphasize Mm -hmm. who is at greatest risk during the life cycle to exposure to these compounds. Yeah, well, certainly one of the things that's very clear about early development and even later development is that very minute amounts of hormones orchestrate that, natural hormones. And so if you have very small amounts of estrogens or androgens during development, then it doesn't take very much of contaminating chemicals to displace those and compete with them and mess up development. Mm -hmm. So hormones are incredibly potent, and so they are very active at very low concentrations. So in development, where a lot of tissues are being formed, is certainly a major time all the way up through puberty. Certainly we know hormonal surges are very important for modeling certain tissues that make you male or female. That is very easily disrupted. And there have been some studies that show that exposure during breast development to chemicals is probably one of the things that contributes to later in life development of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. These are animal studies. Which brings up another issue A lot of times there is a very long lag time between when the initial exposure was and when something like cancer occurs. And these are very difficult studies to do in animals. Mostly people don't fund them because if you have to have an animal in your laboratory through its entire lifespan before you get to the aged part when the disease actually happens, that's not funded very adequately. And it's also in the population, it's much harder to draw those conclusions And it's harder to do the experiments because of the expense. Right. So it's suspected that concentrations, even very tiny concentrations of these compounds, in very early development or early life can have profound effects on changing the tissues that are developing, which can have consequences during development, causing interrupted development, but also can have effects in later life when we have some of these diseases that don't show up until you're 60. Right. But it could have depended upon how you developed as an embryo, a fetus, or a young child. Mm, That's so interesting. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Cheryl Watson. She is Professor Emeritus in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Department at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And we are talking about endocrine disruption and all of the compounds that contain endocrine disruptors that we are exposed to, especially through the food system. Now, one of the reasons why I was directed to you was I saw an article about BPA or bisphenol. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing now products on the market that say BPA-free water bottles (laughs) or or BPA-free cans that my tuna Uh might come in. 
Uh How is the consumer supposed to interpret that label? Well, unfortunately, we're being hoodwinked. (laughs) And the way we're being hoodwinked is because bisphenol A, which was the traditional coating for cans, and it's the actually the that's what the plastic water bottles are made out of, bisphenol A. So you'll see all manner of things now that say BPA-free. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? There's a whole line of variant bisphenol molecules. There's BPS, there's BPF, there's BPAF. There's like probably 15 or 20 of them. Well, what they did was, in many cases, they substituted, especially lately, BPS, because it's a very similar molecule, but they did it before they tested it for the same effects that BPA has. And we did a little bit of that testing in our in vitro systems. And guess what? It's just as bad or worse in terms of disrupting hormonal signaling. Mm. So yes, technically, maybe a lawyer would say it's okay to put BPA free on your article that you're selling because you don't have BPA in there. But that's not honest because what you're substituting is generally not tested, and the structure of the chemicals are so similar that most chemists would have looked at that and said, "Uh uh-oh, I bet we better test that one too, because it probably fits into the receptor about the same way. Uh (laughs) And so this is something that is very, very troubling to me, that manufacturers can advertise that they have eliminated this chemical that we now know, because we've been working on this one for a few years, is an endocrine disruptor, and substitute it with something they haven't tested but looks very similar. Hmm. And we should let our listeners know that the American Chemistry Council, which is a trade association, is really fast to say, oh, well, these chemicals are critical to protecting the quality and integrity of food. And they typically say that in typical uses and at typical exposure levels, they are not harmful. But what we've learned about endocrine disruptors, is, is my understanding anyway, is that these low levels, as you described, are actually physiologically active. So this whole idea that it takes a lot of a certain poison to make you sick does not hold true with endocrine disruptors. That's right, because they mimic hormones. And hormones are active at extremely low levels in development. They're in the femtomolar level or less, picomolar level, very, very low. And yet the natural hormones are active there. But the idea that you had to have big, giant amounts of these things to cause any effects is a real misunderstanding. And the consequence of that is that nobody ever tested them at these very, very low concentrations, same concentrations that hormones are active at, maybe because they could get away with it. (laughs) I mean, what you don't know, you don't have to report, right? Right. So as a scientist working in the area of endocrine systems at all, I am immediately suspicious that anything that mimics a hormone may also be active at very, very low levels. But that has mostly not been tested. The other complication is that hormones and things that act like them are very interesting from the standpoint of doing what we call a dose-response curve. So usually things 
a higher dose you add, the more action you get. A little bit higher, you get more action. A little bit higher, you get more action. And everybody is acceptable to the fact that uh, when you get really, really high, sometimes things plateau. That's the way a lot of chemicals work. But hormones don't work that way. They have a very complicated dose response. And in fact, instead of just increasing and leveling off, they sometimes have double humped curves where they're active at very low concentrations, then they're inactive in a middle concentration, and then active again at higher concentrations, and even are inhibitory at the highest concentrations. And so if you test only very high concentrations, you may be back down to the bottom of this response, and it may even be inhibitory for the response you're looking at. Mm. So it takes a knowledge of how hormones act on these different systems to be able to logically, intelligently predict which concentrations you should test. Mm -hmm. Given a limited amount of money, if you're not allowed to have enough research funding to test all the concentrations, then guess which ones you test? Usually only the highest ones because of this misinterpretation that only the high concentrations should be the ones that are active. Yeah. That was in the weeds a little bit, but uh, it, it's just it's necessary to put that in to get people to understand why a range of concentrations need to be tested. Oh, absolutely. And for the individual listener, we'd like to think that our government agencies, the EPA, USDA, FDA, are there to protect us. But we're finding that a lot of the laws that had been in place are being weakened or maybe the research funding, as you mentioned, isn't there to come up with all of the answers. So it really goes back to the individual again. How are you going to protect your family? And I also see this as an environmental and economic injustice, because when I think about the kinds of foods that are available, say, at a food pantry or a food bank, many times those foods are in plastic or mm-hmm. if we take leftovers from a restaurant, they're going to be in a package that has maybe some of these liners that mm-hmm. also migrate some of those endocrine disruptors. So we've got a real problem on our hands. I know you mentioned some of the disorders that we see from exposure to endocrine disruptors, but one that I wanted to focus on had to do with reproductive problems. It's my understanding that we're seeing increases in women who are having fertility problems. We're seeing an increase in prescriptions for testosterone. Tell me how that works in the environment. Well, as you mentioned, it was very interesting that you're bringing up the fact that there are populations of people that tend to need assistance that end up getting exposed to foods that contain concentrations of these chemicals. Incidentally, canned foods is one of the typical things that we give away in food banks. Right. Cans are aligned with BPA or BPS. Right. So <laughs> there's an awful lot of contamination there. So yes, it becomes an environmental justice kind of issue because people that are least able to afford food are given the kinds of foods that are, quote, well-preserved in containers that leach these kinds of things. Exactly. So it's not surprising then that they may have more diseases that are associated with exposure right. to these kind of chemicals. Including obesity mm-hmm. yes, heart disease and cancers. Right, exactly. And so that's a, a very serious environmental justice kind of issue. And nobody's paying attention to that or using that other than grant writers that don't get funded 
to promote receiving funding to study these things. Right. There was another part of your question that yeah. I think I, I missed it, besides the exposures to people that can least afford to have it. Right. No, I was concerned about the rise in infertility ah, that yes. we see in women and the increase and in prescriptions for testosterone in men. Yes. Certainly the sperm counts worldwide are really falling. Mm. One of the most interesting studies that are done epidemiologically, which are very hard to do, but mapping the kind of incidence of things like declining sperm viability, mm-hmm. sometimes you can map that and find that there is a hot spot of low sperm quality in an area that is, say, near some kind of a factory or a, a spill or something like that. So a lot of our evidence comes from doing widespread kind of looking at the human population. And sometimes we can get amazing insights into it because there was some kind of a spill or contamination or the presence of a factory Mm -hmm. in the area. So that's one indication that testosterone levels and sperm counts are being definitely affected. Mm -hmm. It certainly can go for uh, female infertility as well because there are lots of things that mimic estrogens and disrupt that. But that's one of the ways why we know that humans are being affected. We certainly know that there's a declining fertility in a lot of places. And this is kind of our way of looking at it scientifically and teasing out what the problem chemicals might be. Right. Well, and aren't we all exposed? I think it would be rare. I think there was a study that was done on families that were very carefully avoiding plastics and Mm -hmm. eating organic food, trying to avoid pesticide residues. And even they had levels in their blood and urine of chemicals, not as much maybe as in Mm -hmm. a population that was being more heavily exposed. But still, it's very hard to escape these compounds because they're ubiquitous in our environment. You bet. Visibly, you can see the large floating islands of plastic in the ocean. Right. But what's, uh, what you see floating on the ocean is only a tiny fraction. The rest of it's sunk. <laughs> yeah. And is leaching these materials into the water all the time. In every landfill mm-hmm. where there are plastics being buried, every time there's any kind of a solvent, including water that goes through that landfill, more and more of those things get leached out and then goes into the groundwater system and becomes our drinking water. And most of the water treatment plants do not filter out those kinds of small molecules. Mm. So we're seeing it more and more in our water supply. And we're seeing it in animals that we eat, like fish, because the plastics break down in very tiny amounts, very tiny particles, and then the fish ingest them, and then we eat the fish. And I saw an article today that noted that in earthworms, in a contaminated site, the earthworms are ingesting microplastics, and it's certainly affecting their health. And if you don't have healthy soil to grow your food on, (laughs) then you're also adversely affected. Exactly. So it's just like so many different levels that we're only just beginning to think of all of them. Mm -hmm. It's pervasive. Well, Dr. Watson, unfortunately, our time is up, but I want to make sure people can go and learn more about this if they wish, as well as get involved politically so that we have 
better policies in place to protect the population. You mentioned there's a Facebook page called Endocrine Disruptors, and I'll provide a link to that. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Cheryl Watson, Professor Emeritus in the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Department at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Thank you so much, Dr. Watson. And I thank you very much for your interest.